Welcome to Responsa Radio, where you ask and we answer questions of Jewish law in modern times. I'm Rabbi Avi Killip, here with Rabbi Ethan Tucker, Rosh Hashiva Hadar, a center for higher Jewish learning based in New York City. How are you doing? I'm okay, Avi. My voice is a little uh, gravelly. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, so hopefully our listeners will bear with us. I think today's question will be particularly interesting to the students who were with us at Hadar in our yeshiva program this past summer, where the students were studying the tractate of Avodah Zarah about foreign or strange worship, which I think you might have started out thinking was not going to be the most relevant and practical of texts, and yet keeps emerging for me since the summer and more and practical ways. And this question is a perfect example of that. Sounds interesting. Okay, let's hear it. The questioner writes, I take Tai Chi lessons with other students in a gym. My instructor likes to end each lesson by saluting the ancestors. There are pictures on the wall of the people, all deceased, who founded this gym and founded this style of Tai Chi. The salute is done by making a fist with the right hand and covering it with the flat palm of the left hand. Then you extend your hands in the direction of these pictures. No bowing is involved. I'm told this is done to show respect. And here's the question. Is it permissible under halakha for me to do this? Is it a form of a vodazara? If so, how does it differ from a military salute towards higher-ranking officers? Or for that matter, how does it differ from saluting a flag? All right. I'm pretty excited about this question, actually, because one of my kids has started doing karate. And I feel like there's stuff like this also. Like I picked him up the other day and there was some whole ritual going on at the end. And I asked him, I was like, is that Abu Zarah going on there at the end? Like what's happening? So um, I'm excited to explore this a little. I, I actually also did karate as a child and remember, you know, here he's specifically saying that there is no bowing involved. But I remember you know, that you started every class by bowing to the instructor. So I'm curious. I, yeah. I don't remember worrying about it at the time, but I'm curious if I should have been worrying about it. Let me start with the questioner's assumption, which is that bowing is a problem. Um, in other words, the question is, well, no bowing is involved, meaning if there was bowing, that would seem to be a problem. I want to start there because bowing is, in fact, definitely seriously problematic writ large the questioner is right to have the instinct that bowing might be more problematic than other ways we interact with people or objects um on a basic level if you think about it it is the action the physical action that we're warned not to do in the ten commandments don't bow down to other gods to images of other gods etc etc and if you think about the story of the golden calf the thing that the people do that is basically one of the outrageous things is they bow down to the calf. And in that sense, it is sort of repeatedly emphasized throughout the Torah as a thing you don't do. So, and I want to actually come back to that because there are a number of Talmudic texts that are really clear how problematic bowing is, even if you have no intention of worship. So the Talmud in Tractate Avodah Zarah gives three cases 
where you might uh, sort of in air quotes bow down to some kind of idol or statue where you're not allowed to. Here's the cases. Let's say you sit on a thorn and you need to like remove it from your body. But the way you would do that is to sort of bend over to be able to reach it. And that happens to you in front of, let's say, a statue of a god, imagine in a you know, Greco-Roman type of environment. You're not allowed to bend over in order to remove the thorn. Or another case, you drop coins out of your pocket all over the street right in front of a statue like this, you're not allowed to bend over and pick them up because it's going to look like you're bowing down to this statue. Or if there is a, uh, a stream or a kind of a fountain that is coming out near uh, a statue, you're not allowed to bend over just to drink the water because it will look like you're bowing down to the statue. The Talmud says you're allowed to do it if you sort of do it in a way that doesn't look like bowing, like you go down on your side or the posture is pretty clearly uh, not the normal way of bowing. But this is a case where all you're trying to do is remove a thorn, pick up the cash you dropped, or get a drink because you're thirsty. And you're not allowed to do any of those things, even though you have no intention of worshiping whatsoever, because bowing in front of an image or a statue is out. So these texts feel very clearly on the side of your intent is irrelevant. It's what it looks like, as opposed to what you're actually thinking in the moment. Yeah, I think that's right. And what you get developed in a few other places, like in uh, Tractate Sanhedrin and the Talmud, is the idea that because bowing down is an element of the Jewish worship of God, so you mentioned, like on Yom Kippur, or even let's just think about bowing during the Aleinu, like in basically every service that we ever pray, and in the Amida, right? All of this stuff where we bow to God, it's considered a violation of the laws of idolatry to bow to anything that is worshipped, even if that's not the normal way that idol is worshipped. So, you know, one of the things hmm. some of our students from this uh, past summer you referred to will remember this, um, there were rock piles associated with the god Hermes that were worshipped by travelers uh, in the ancient world, because Hermes is the god of travel and messenger, etc. Um, and the way you would actually, you know, show reverence to those piles of rocks would be to tend to the stones in the pile, like you would add a stone to the pile, for instance. No one bowed down to those piles. But nonetheless, if a Jew bows down to that kind of pile of rocks, the Talmud tells us that is considered a core violation of idolatry. Bowing itself to anything that's an object of worship is problematic. So it's the way that you worship something, and then what object is it that you're worshiping, as opposed to what's the object and how is that normally worshipped? Yeah, you sort of have to worry about both levels. You shouldn't be worshiping an object in the way it's worshipped, but then there are these sort of key activities, and Talmud lists four of them, that are so intrinsically worshipful acts for Jews, like bowing down, that you can't do that in any context. 
So the questioner has pretty good reason to think that bowing down in general would be a problem and to be nervous about that. It makes me actually grateful that the person who wrote the question took the time to describe what the salute looks like because I realize I've never seen a salute like that or certainly done a salute like that as part of a Jewish prayer ritual. And maybe that does somewhat put this in a different category. Yeah, good. So I think we'll get to that. Like That is, I think, an important mitigating factor. But even staying with bowing for a minute, If you look back narratively in the Torah, you find a number of places where some of our ancestors, righteous ones, (laughs) bowed down to people. So people can probably conjure up some of these examples for themselves. I'll give just a few. Avraham bows down to three men who appear to him on a hot day before he knows that they're angels or manifestations of God. He also bows down to the Hittite council when he wants permission to bury Sarah's body after she has passed away and wants to get some place on their land to do that. Um, Yaakov and his wives and children bow down to Esav. Yaakov bows down to his son Yosef when Yosef agrees he'll bury him back in his ancestral homeland. Moshe bows down to his father-in-law at Mount Sinai, and even Natan the prophet bows down to King David when he gets an audience to him. So there is some kind of bowing that's allowed. The question is, how do we make sense of that? Because the Torah does say, don't bow down, don't worship things. So there's a rabbinic source that I think has to be understood as trying to kind of harmonize these two elements that we've talked about so far. The total ban on bowing on the one hand and the widespread practice of bowing, it seems, in all kinds of places. Avraham wasn't accidentally picking up a dollar bill that he dropped on the ground. That's right. He seems like he is actively... He He knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing. So there's an early rabbinic source, the Mechilta of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. It's a kind of midrashic text from the same time as the Mishnah, roughly. And it says something really interesting. Based on the language of the Ten Commandments, don't bow down to these gods and these other things. And it says as follows, don't bow down to them, but you are allowed to bow down to a person. Meaning the idea seems to be the ban on bowing is really relating to objects that are either gods or images of gods, things that are meant to be worshiped. Bowing to a person is not necessarily in that category. The text then immediately asks, could I have applied that even to a person who is being worshipped, like Haman? We'll come back to Haman Mm. and that amazing example in a minute. No. The Torah says, Don't bow down to them and don't worship them. Don't bow down in the context of worship. So the idea really is, there are two kinds of bowing. There's bowing that is in order to worship something. And so if the thing is an object of worship, you cannot be bowing to it at all. Whether it's a person or an object. Exactly. And then what we're more familiar most of the time with why people bow to other people, there's bowing as a sign of respect. It actually, in the examples you were giving, I kept thinking of a handshake you might say, oh, and Avraham shook hands with the three men who came to his tent, and Avraham shook hands when he made a deal. Um, that it, it 
doesn't work across the board, I think, in all the examples that you gave, but in many of the examples you could see in a modern context where a handshake would be the appropriate. And I think there are many cultures around the world where a quick bow is the equivalent of a handshake. You, you know, you bow when you greet someone as opposed to you shake your hand when they walk in the room. Yeah. So I think one of the things you're, you're pointing out here, and it may help us also distinguish between different kinds of bows, is a bow compared to a handshake works when, like a handshake, the bow is kind of mutual. Right. So right. in a culture where two people bow to each other, it's pretty clear that that is something like a handshake. What's pretty striking, though, about some of the biblical examples is the bowing is intended in most of those cases to indicate some degree of subservience of right. one party to the other, even though it doesn't seem like a subservience of worship. It seems like a subservience of respect and hierarchy. Right. It makes me think to my timing American karate class that we would bow to the teacher, but the teacher would also bow to the students, which may even be a little bit different than before you would engage with one other person in karate, you would bow to each other, which it was definitely a mutual, we respect each other. That was, that was what that was meant to send. Yeah, that's right. So I think that would probably help a lot. That doesn't seem like what the questioner is talking about here, right? The ancestors on the wall are not right. bowing back. And I think it's fair to say they are understood in this context to be in some superior hierarchical position. The question is, how do we sort of navigate that? Now, as a side note, I think the really interesting thing about this Midrash is it's implicitly trying to figure out well, why wouldn't Mordechai bow down to Haman in the story of Purim? Um, because once the Midrash is arguing that basically it is permitted to bow down to human officials and leaders in order to honor them, shouldn't Mordechai just have bowed down and saved his people a lot of trouble? Yeah. And so it assumes in order to make this all fit, that Haman was indeed stylizing himself as a kind of object of worship, and therefore Mordechai couldn't comply. But at its core, the Midrash paves the way for bowing to people out of a sense of honor. Right. There's something also in the Haman story that feels very intentionally about what it will look like to other people. That the reason why Haman both wants that bow and is so upset when he doesn't get it is because he wants others to see Mordechai bowing, which, which I think does put it into that first category of problematic. Um, and I think there are stories throughout history, I don't know if they're real or apocryphal, of different leaders trying to sort of trick Jews into bowing by, you know, dropping the coins intentionally in front of the idol, that, that some of those restrictions feel also like maybe they were intentionally set as traps or as a bait to try to create a certain public image. Yeah. So, you know, I think these questions have actually been very real for Jews at various points in history. In the Middle Ages, it came up frequently around respect for local priests um, who often expected people, and especially Jews, to bow to them. And Christians walking around often with crucifixes around their neck and other objects that at least Jews certainly perceived as being objects of worship. And the question was, how, if at all, are you supposed to sort of modify your behavior in those contexts? You have one really striking text from the Or Zarua in the Middle Ages who says that when you're in the middle of the Amida 
and you get to something like the modim paragraph in the middle, where it's one of the places you're supposed to bow, if a Christian wearing a crucifix is walking by at that moment, he says, you have to wait until you bow down for modim. In other words, you neither want to create, I think, for yourself the experience, nor for them the perception that you are bowing in front of this object of worship, which is really a direct extension of those Talmudic sources we saw earlier about the fountain and the coins and the thorn. Um, doesn't matter if you just think you're davening the Amida. You can't do this in front of an object that's an object of worship. It makes me think of a different question that we answered once about shared worship space, whether it was in an airport or in a university, that question. And, and I think a lot of Jewish communities that end up renting space from a church periodically, you know, have questions about, oh, do we need to cover up the Christian symbols in the room lest it look like something different is happening here? Yeah. So and that's, I think, based, you know, a strict approach to that is based on what the Or Zarua says here, sort of extended from the Talmud. Where it gets complicated, though, is what if, as I mentioned, there's a priest or some figure of renown or a noble who is perhaps wearing a crucifix, but expects you to bow to them, not because of the crucifix, but because of their social standing. Are you allowed to do that? So we have a really interesting responsum cited in the name of Rav Yitzchak of Oppenheim. He seems to be from around the turn of the 15th century, who permits Jews to bow down and remove one's hat for a priest with a crucifix dangled around his neck. Wow. And his logic is as follows. Since the priests don't consider themselves to be gods, but they're just there to demand honor from other people, and in fact, what is going on with that bow, he assesses, is some notion that they themselves are just being honored rather than trying to get people to worship the crucifix around their neck, it's okay to show them respect, even in the presence of that image. And his main proof is that passage from the Mechilta that we cited earlier. As long as the person is not worshipped, then one can bow down to them. And the idea he seems to be saying is it's different than the Talmudic case of the fountain or other things where all that's in front of you is this statue. Here, the sort of observer would understand it as bowing to a person who happens to have a crucifix around their neck as opposed to bowing to a crucifix that happens to be around the neck of a person. Yeah, it reminds me most of the idea of a judge coming into a courtroom and them saying, you know, all rise for the honorable so-and-so. It happens to be that in that instance, the way you show respect is by standing as opposed to by bowing. But you could see that the culture could have developed differently wherein it would be now bow your heads for the honorable so-and-so. And then we would really be in almost that exact situation. Yeah, I think one of the places we've seen this sort of uh, somewhat surprisingly, perhaps from internal Jewish norms, is in some of the controversy in NFL games and other sporting events about standing for the national anthem or going down on one knee to the national anthem. In the contemporary American context, going down on the knee is seen as a form of protest as right. opposed to standing at attention. From an internal Jewish frame, I often think, I'm like, well, isn't going down on one knee even more respectful? So those things can be very, right. very contingent. 
So there's a there's this sort of mix here. The last thing that Rav Yitzchak of Oppenheim says, which I think is interesting, is he says, look, it's okay to do all of this, but if you are a Jew in a position where you feel you got to bow to a priest with a crucifix, you should close your eyes while you do that so you're not looking at the crucifix. Um, that there's some notion of also responding both to the external optics, but what do you feel you're doing? And are you sort of protecting the boundaries of your own experience? And what I find very interesting about this discussion is it's not a subjective judgment call of the individual, but it is contextual, meaning it's not enough for the individual to say, well, I don't think I'm worshiping something, so I can bow down in front of this statue in order to pick up my money, right? Like, it's not just up to you to say, here's what I think I'm doing, but there still is a context that matters where Rav Yitzhak of Oppenheim is saying, yeah, but in a culture where everyone knows you bow down to a priest, they're not going to think of it as an act of worship, as opposed to in a culture where people would bow down to a statue in front of, let's say, a fountain. Even if you think that you're just going down to drink, that's not what it will look like to others. Um, and so basically what emerges is you're not allowed to bow down to something, even if your intention is just honor, if it is something that is worshipped. Right. But if it's not worshipped, then the act of bowing itself is not problematic, even though that's a classic worship form. Right. I actually really like the idea of closing your eyes as sort of a personal extra layer that you can choose to add. Even though it, it seems to me, maybe you'll throw me a curveball at the end, it seems to me like we're going to come out on the side of this salute to the ancestors is going to be okay. Um, but the fact that this questioner wrote the question to us says to me that they don't feel totally comfortable with that practice. And the idea of saying when you do it, you could just close your eyes and it's a little bit subtle and nobody in the room has to know that you're doing it, but it would be a way to sort of tell yourself, I, I need a, a shinui of some sort. I need a change. I need to do something that indicates to myself that this feels a little bit wrong or uncomfortable to me. Um, that feels actually like a really nice possibility and opportunity to make that change. Yeah. I think it's also a form that a lot of Jews have done throughout the years uh, in a sort of less fraught in terms of, you know, threat to life and limb way. I think there are many Jews in the United States who, whether it was in context of saying the Lord's Prayer or uh, singing various kind of Christmas carols in public schools or other contexts, would not necessarily walk out of the room and they didn't necessarily feel that the content itself was intrinsically problematic, but might have mouthed the words without vocalizing them or right. found other strategies of saying, I don't think I have to throw a major fit here in terms of separating myself, but I cannot just do this like everyone else. And this is, I think you're right, pointing to some kind of coping strategy. Once you've cleared the basic hurdle of, okay, is this idolatry or not? Right. <laughs> and Rav Yitzhak of Oppenheim is comfortable saying the case he's discussing is not. That doesn't mean you're all the way to feeling fine. I think there's also something that I hear coming through in many of the texts that you described. And I'm curious to hear if you, if you think this is right or, or if you hear something different, um, that the purpose of the laws around Avodah Zarah are not intended to get 
Jewish people to disrespect other people, that it's about actually not doing acts of worship, but that in many of these cases, the reason why we're saying it's okay when we are saying it's okay is because we do, in fact, want to be able to show honor to other people and in these cases to non-Jewish people in all sorts of contexts and we shouldn't be using the laws of Avodah as a cover to be rude you know which is maybe you know to say to this teacher like oh because I'm Jewish I can't salute the ancestors might actually fall into that category if it's not really a problem. Right. So I think this comes up in lots of different contexts. You know, I think Rav Yitzhak of Oppenheim with a medieval Christian priest probably would be more on the edge of feeling like, I don't know that I want to show this person so much honor, but I, I just have don't want to die. <laughs> exactly. It's complicated, etc. Um, that's probably on one end of the spectrum. But then you have things that come up all the time in terms of certainly internally Jewishly. The sources about Natan the prophet bowing down to the king. Rambam codifies this, that everyone is supposed to bow down to the king. If you see wow. even a prophet is doing that. The only person exempt, interestingly enough, is the Kohen Gadol, the high priest. He sort of has his own intrinsic holiness that makes that inappropriate. But everyone else is supposed to bow down. Uh, it's certainly common practice, including among religious soldiers uh, in the Israeli army, that you salute your commander and your officer. The notion of showing respect is something that's very important um, and very central. The question is, and I think this is what's tricky, is the line between worship and honor can be a fine one. And to the extent there's some nervousness around it, that is appropriate. But I agree with you. It also shouldn't be an excuse to eviscerate the category of honor, which is also very real. I'm curious to hear the uh, this questioner added a few extra and what about this? And what about that? That I that I want to check in on. Um, the first was the military salute, which you just referred to. I'm curious to hear more about what you think about that. And then the idea of the flag, which I think is particularly interesting because a flag is an object, which, you know, we had sort of said maybe there's a difference between people and objects and a flag is an object. Um, and just this language of, you know, it's like in my Jewish day school where we started every class with, I pledge allegiance to the flag, whether that feels like it is part of this category, we weren't bowing necessarily, or is this something entirely, or is, you know, or is that something entirely different? Yeah, so I think, you know, once we've established there's a category of honor that is different from worship, one of the things that becomes incumbent upon a person and perhaps, let's say, a subculture of observant Jews to decide um, is what's happening here. Is it honor or is it worship? Uh, If you asked me, my experience with flags is that there's no culture of worship around the flag in the sense that we're talking about it here. No one views the flag as really an entity with power uh, that needs to be served. And even the language of I pledge allegiance is a notion of, you know, essentially committing oneself to a set of ideals that are understood to be symbolized. Uh, Some people, I think, who have a greater degree of allergy around that than others, but I feel pretty confident saying that that's the case with respect to flags, um, such that even if there was a bow of respect to a flag, I think 
that could probably pretty safely be classified as something that is not worshipped. It's not that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and when we're talking about a military salute, and we're quite clearly talking about someone who's saluted because they're in a uniform and in a given position, and certainly in democracies, those positions switch around in a sort of meritocratic way over time and through the generations, uh, those feel to me very safely on the side of completely permitted activities. But I can imagine a setting where people started to feel we've gotten into Haman territory. We've somehow gotten into a situation where either the people or the objects, uh, we are being demanded to sort of revere and submit ourselves to them in a way that becomes wildly inappropriate. My sense is contemporary democracies are not in that place right now, but I think we have some good warning from our tradition that that hasn't always been the case. Yeah, it's interesting. That makes me come back to the uh, the football kneeling protests and this question of, is it okay? Or is it okay for them to say, I'm electing to not participate in this show of respect because I have some statement I want to make. Um, and when we would get to a point as a society where it would not be okay to opt out, then maybe that would be different. Or in the case of this Tai Chi class, were this person to say to the teacher, I'm not comfortable, and the teacher would say, well, then you can't come to class. Might that actually change the nature of the situation? Yeah, it's a really interesting way to formulate it. I mean, if we think so, going back, I guess, to the bottom line, to give, to give the questioner what my sense of the answer, um, I think the real question comes down to, are the images here that the questioner is describing understood to be worshipped? And is the salute that the person describes an act of worship based on what the given factors, right, that, that right. were shared with us? It seems clear the answer is no, right? So we're not dealing here with a case of bowing, but it seems to me that probably even bowing in this sort of context would be okay. It would be an act of respect for an object, in this case, an image of a person who is not worshipped, who's understood to just be an ancestor who I mean, is being paid it's homage a hakarat to. Hatov. Yeah, there's a kind <laughs> a of gratitude, gratitude here. Um, and that seems to be exactly the case that our passage from the Mechilta talked about. Uh, but the questioner is right to have investigated this. In other words, I wouldn't dismiss this as saying, ah, oh, what are you talking about? Everything's fine. Right. It's the kind of thing that you should, I think, be nervous about or mindful about. Um, and it teaches us, I think, a couple things. You know, we have to take very seriously how other people interact with the objects of their devotion. Like if they consider something to be something that's worshipped and they have certain signals and actions that mean that, those take on a real meaning. And we then also need to sort of make sure it doesn't blur our own commitments as Jews. And again, it goes back to this point of the line between worship and honor can be a fine one. And I think it's good to be vigilant about seeing where it lies, even as when you are on the side of honor, it's totally appropriate and even probably the right thing to do to participate with everyone else. I want to ask one final follow-up question. You sort of snuck in there a line about maybe being different for the Kohen Gadol, for the leader of the community. And it makes me wonder, is there a different answer to this question if you are the rabbi of the community, or let's just say the Rosh Hashiva, for example? Um, do, does that make you think differently about 
how you behave in a moment like this than if you are just a Jew who's trying to observe the laws, but isn't necessarily the person people are looking to as the example of what's okay and what's not okay. Yeah. So I think it's tricky to get into the exact uh, question of which position in the community is sort of high enough to trigger that. And obviously the high priest is sort of so sui generis, one of a kind in terms of this intrinsic bodily holiness. Right, it's like, does the Pope do do karate? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So maybe that would be different. And I certainly, I wouldn't put too many contemporary rabbis in the same category, you know, of the Kohen Gadol for that purpose. But I will say what you're saying evokes another text that comes up here, which is, the Tosafot, in fact, ask, based on another passage that we didn't talk about, um, really, why did Mordechai not bow down to Haman? Um, mm-hmm. You know, they're sort of unsatisfied, I think, fully with the notion that he was really being worshipped. And particularly, there's, there's a passage where Rava says in the Talmud that if you bow down to something just because you're afraid something's going to happen to you, that's not really an act of idolatry because idolatry, right. unlike other actions, let's say murder or other things, like requires intent to be meaningful. So what's the matter? And one of the answers that they give is, well, maybe he had a sense that there was a sort of opportunity and imperative for Kiddush Hashem, for sanctifying God's name in this particular context and because of his position, that he sort of went above and beyond what might have been required in terms of the technical specs of what's considered idolatry for what it seemed like the community needed at that moment. They cite this sort of other kind of crazy story where during one period of persecutions uh, in the Hadrianic period, there were two Jews who were given a glass of water, but in a tinted red glass, such Mm. that it would look like a glass of blood. And it was presented in a public way. We're going to make these people drink this blood. And it was just water. Right. And they nonetheless martyred themselves, refused to drink it, and were killed. And there's discussion about, like, how could they have done that? But they weren't doing anything wrong. There's some notion of the optics at that moment, they concluded, demanded, and above and beyond. So I can certainly imagine a scenario where not an average participant in Tai Chi, but some leader or in some context felt like something is being manipulated here in a way that even if I know it's okay, is intended to kind of redound to the weakening of the Jewish community in some way, um, that might trigger a more kind of firm line and boundary. Interesting. Well, hopefully none of us, even the Jewish leaders among our listeners, will find themselves in such a dire situation of uh, choosing whether or not to drink water out of these red glasses. Um, And in the meantime, I I hope it's a helpful answer to both this particular questioner and to anyone who finds themselves in a situation where they maybe feel a little bit uncomfortable, but will put themselves in the category of honoring as opposed to worship and figure out how to behave accordingly. Thanks. Thank you. If you enjoy listening to Responsa Radio, please consider making a donation to Hadar at www.hadar.org or Jewish Public Media at jpmedia.co. Fighting, 
Responsa Radio is a project of the Center for Jewish Law and Values in Hadar and is produced by Jewish Public Media, which creates, curates, and promotes excellent Jewish content. Have a halachic question you'd like answered on the show? Email us at halacha at hadar.org. Or you could leave us a voicemail message at 215-297-4254.